Anyway, I'm glad that you're here today. We welcome those on Facebook, especially our Florida contingent. Hello to you guys. Glad you're here and joining us. And uh, we're going to be talking today about Jesus enduring the wrath of God on the cross. Last week it was the wrath of man. This week is the wrath of God being poured out on Jesus on the cross. And I want to take a lot of time at the end to talk about anger and wrath and how we're living in a society that has a lot of anger and wrath and how we can deal with our anger and wrath. Now, some of you may say, well, I don't have that problem. Well, let me ask you a question. Do you have a wife? Do you have a husband? <laughs> Do you have kids? I can guarantee you if you had kids, you've had anger. Yes, you have. And by the way, if anybody's ever traveled down I-94, you've had anger. You've joined me in that. So we all have this issue, and our culture is full of it. Not just full of anger, but full of it. Yeah. But anyway, let's get serious. Let's get back to what we're supposed to be doing here. And by the way, I want to do the John MacArthur thing. It is a delight to share with you the Word of God today. And it really is. He starts out that, with that every time. So we're, Jesus endures the wrath of God, Matthew 27, 45 through 50. Please stand as we read the Word of God. We honor God by standing when we read His precious Word. Now, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said to him, leave him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Thank you, Father, for this time to study your word. Thank you that we're here today to hear from you. Holy Spirit, teach us things that you want us to know. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I saw a lot of you guys look at me at strangely because I seated you before I prayed, but hey, it's a surprise day. The theme of Matthew is Jesus is the promised king. And of course, that gives us great hope that there's a king coming that will rule in this world one day, and there will be law, justice, righteousness, and amazing love in the kingdom of God. And we're looking forward to that. In the meantime, we're here in training to be prepared for that kingdom. You are in Jesus' school right now, being prepared for the kingdom that is coming. Last week, we talked about the wrath of man being poured out on Jesus and how awful that wrath was. Remember the flagrum, that whip with that ball of iron at the end with the sharp edges or sharp pieces of stone, and he was whipped mercilessly by the Romans. The Romans had no restrictions like the Jews did. Remember, it was 40 lashes with the Jews, and they usually did minus one so they didn't break their own law. The Romans had no such restriction. Jesus was beaten to a pulp, bloody. He was so bloodied and so weak, he couldn't carry his own cross. Remember, Jesus was a strong man. He was a carpenter. He was, and carpenters built with wood and stone in the Middle East. He lifted heavy weights. He was, he was probably a studly man, and he was beaten to a pulp so weak that he could not carry his own cross. Isaiah 52, 14 gives us a, a, a view of what Jesus looked like. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond any human. 
Then we see Jesus placed on the cross at 9 o'clock in the morning, and his first words from the cross is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. His second cry from the cross is, This day you will be with me in paradise to the, to the thief who prior, early on in the cross, was ridiculing him, but then saw who was next to him and says, Oh, I want to be with that guy. I want to be with him in paradise. And Jesus says, Oh, this day you will be with me. And a third cry from the cross is, Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Passing off the care of Mary, the mo- her, his mom, to John, the Apostle John. All of these were an act of Jesus' love for people that were at the cross, particularly the Romans, as he's, they, they are the ones that were brutalizing him. And he points at them and says, My God, my God, forgive them. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, this week we're going to be talking about the wrath of God being poured out on his son. This is way worse than the wrath of men. We're going to be talking about anger. And I have a slide here that's going to come up talking about anger and wrath. These are two words in the Greek that predominate in the New Testament. There is another one, paraagismos, which means severe anger and wrath. We'll get to that in just a few minutes. But anger, orge, wrath, thumos, anger, orge, is indignation that has risen gradually, settled condition of the mind, oftentimes revenge is plotted, lingering, seething emotion. This comes on slow and just kind of simmers in a person. They live in this state of anger. Wrath is the explosion that happens, the sudden outburst of passion and anger, a blaze of temper, flares into violent words or deeds, blowing off steam. This erupts quickly and comes down quickly. This lingers forever and ever until you deal with it. Those are the two words that we're going to be focusing on today, mainly, mainly. Now, Jesus is going to be hanging on the cross, and it's going to be the darkness that comes over this world as he experiences the wrath of God. We pick it up in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, that's 12 noon our time, until the ninth hour, 3 p.m., there was darkness over all the land. Now that word land, if you look it up in in the Strong's, it is G-E, not General Electric, but G-E, earth, and it means earth. Okay, so there's a question whether this darkness was over the whole earth or whether it was localized. However, Luke clarifies in Luke 23, 44, it was about the 12th hour, or it's 12 noon, the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. So whether there was darkness over all the earth, we have no way to validate that, but the scripture says it was, so I will will take that. Now there's extra biblical evidence from local historians that validate this darkness coming and this earthquake that came at the time that Jesus died. Now, what you need to know is this. The maximum duration of a solar eclipse. A lot of people say, well, it was just a three-hour eclipse. Impossible. The maximum duration of a solar eclipse is seven minutes, not three hours. This darkness was a miracle of God. A miracle of God. Now, there are four guys that at least write about this, Philagian, Thallius, Africanus, and Tertullian. I'll tell you what Philagian says. He was a Greek historian, lived about A.D. 137, talked about the earthquake and the darkness. He says this, quote, In the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, A.D. 33, there was the greatest eclipse of the sun. See, they thought it was an eclipse. That's all they knew. And in it, it became... It came night in the sixth hour of the day, noon. 
so that the stars even appeared in the heavens. There was a great earthquake in Bithynia, and many things were overturned in Nicaea. Thallius, Africanus, Tertullian, all validate similar stories, have similar stories that validate this. It was dark for three hours, and it was extraordinary. Now, why the darkness? The Greek word for dark is skotia. Skotia can mean a spiritual darkness or can mean a physical darkness. This is the awfulness of darkness of sin being poured out on Jesus, and God just kind of blacks it out. Blacks it out. So all humanity knows something different is happening on that cross on that day. Now, in Exodus chapter 10, verse 21, we read about this darkness that penetrated Egypt. And it was, it was the ninth plague. Remember, there are ten plagues in Egypt, all against the Egyptian gods, the foreign gods. God is showing himself to be superior over all these gods. The ninth plague is darkness. He says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. Darkness which may even be felt. And I would suspect the people at the cross felt this darkness. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven. There was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. Nobody could move from wherever they were when this darkness came. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. The people of God walk in the light. Darkness. Darkness is associated with judgment. In the darkness, God the Father is placing all the judgment that we deserved on His Son. We must realize this concept. Indeed, that is darkness. That is a dark time. All the sins of, of the world, from Adam all the way to the last person, have been placed on Jesus. Past, present, future, all of our sins placed on Jesus. All of God's wrath is poured out. Now, Jesus is feeling this. This thing is egregious to him. The darkness is there. This, the, the pain and suffering of the crucifixion was there, but it was nothing compared to the wrath of God being poured out on his son at that moment. The wrath of God. He was experienced the loneliness, and he gives this cry of despair in verse 46. Watch what he says. And about the ninth hour... 12 noon, when the darkness has, has, has descended upon the earth and all the sins of the world are on Jesus for that three-hour time frame, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sapathani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why am I alone? He, he desperately felt into the inner part of his soul. He felt an abandonment by God. He's never felt this before. He's never been distanced from God before. He's, this, this anguish is, is, is just breaking his heart, his soul, his spirit. A cry of despair. Let me say it again. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God. You can feel the passion here. Why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me alone? The answer to that question is this. God cannot be in the presence of sin. Jesus is hanging naked, stark naked on the cross, beaten to a pulp, and every sin ever committed in the history of mankind is being placed on Jesus. And he's crying out, where are you, Father? 
Remember, Jesus is God. He always existed. He's always been in perfect community in the Godhead. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And he feels this distance, this separation from God. Something else is happening here. Something else is happening here. Remember at the cross, you have these biblical scholars, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians. They're all savvy in God's word. And what God is doing here, he's saying to those people who know the word, go back to Psalm 22. And in Psalm 22, you read these words. And if you read the rest of Psalm 22, it describes pretty good what's happening on the cross hundreds of years prior to crucifixion occurring. It's an amazing prophetic truth. It says this in Psalm 22.1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? This is a picture of exactly what is happening on the cross. And he's telling these guys that should know the word, this is who you're crucifying. My God, my God. It's always been in the heart of God to save humanity by offering his only begotten son. It was a love gift. The giving God gave his son so that we could live with him forever. Every human born into this world is born into the kingdom of darkness and must be extracted. I'll exposit that more later in just a second. It's always been in the heart of God to save. John 3.16 just bursts forth into our, into our beings. For God so loved the world that the giving God gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, there's going to be different responses by the people watching the crucifixion to Jesus suffering on the cross. And we see that in verses 47 through 49. Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran, took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. Now, some had compassion on Jesus. They wanted to help him. It's just a simple sponge filled with wine. But the majority, calloused, not caring, cry out, let him alone. Let's see if some performance will happen here. Let's see if Elijah comes down. We want to see the, the show. Nothing new here, folks. Remember, there's only a remnant that will be true believers in Jesus. And it gets even less as we get closer to the end. More of a remnant as we get closer to the end when the Laodicean church is the one that's popular and everyone is turning away from the true Jesus, embracing a false Jesus, and acting like they're Christians. We see that in our world today. There'll be more on that in just a few seconds too. So there's nothing new here. There's only a few. And Jesus said it. It's going to be this way. Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many, many, many go in by it. And narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are very few. There's only a remnant that will find it, those who turn their eyes on Jesus. Most people don't have time for Jesus, but there is the remnant that will live for Him, speak for Him in the culture, and maybe even die for Him. There, is, there are those fervent for Christ, but the majority, no, no. What is Jesus doing here? 
He's paying our ransom price, the redemptive price for our lives. His life for our life. And in verse 50, he cries out these words, it is finished. Matthew doesn't record the finality of it because Jesus says, into your hands I commit my spirit. Picked up another gospels. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Remember, no one took Jesus' spirit. He willingly gave it up for us. Every one of us. Every one of us. There's a slide that'll come up here. Jesus accomplished his mission. Paid in full. Now, you guys are good Bible students, and you know what that word is. Tetelestai. Tetelestai. Paid in full. The ransom price was paid for humanity. Now, what is paid in full? Jesus' Jesus' death paid the price for our lives to be saved. He is the one that paid the ransom price. Many commentaries expound on this. This is just a few things that are said. Jesus has sensed that God has withdrawn his presence from him. He's sensed that there's not going to be any deliverance from Father. He felt abjectly rejected. Judgment and condemnation of God are being poured out on him. He felt abandoned to the hands of his enemies. Oh, where are you, Father, as he's paying this ransom debt? Paid in full. Isaiah 53.10 says this, It pleased the Lord, Yahweh, to bruise him or to crush him. Why? Later in that chapter says his soul was an offering for my sin. Put your name there. For my sin. He died for all. all. Now, Jesus is experiencing the abandonment of God. He feels abjectly alone on the cross as he's paying that ransom price in the darkness that is surrounding him. In the darkness of his soul as everything is poured on him. Have you ever felt... Like God has abandoned you. Have you ever been there? I bet you have. When something's come on you and you go, what in the world is going on here, God? I don't understand this. Job was there. Job was there. There'll be a slide that comes up. Job 23, 8 through 10. Remember, Job lost his family. Job lost his children. Job lost his health. Job lost everything. Even his wife says, curse God and die, Job. Curse God and die. And Job, in this moment, what he's really reflecting on, what is going on, God, says this. Tell me if you haven't experienced this. But if I go to the east, he is not there. If I go to the west, I do not find him. Where are you, God? When he is at work at the north, in the north, I do not see him. When he turns to the south, I do not catch a glimpse of him. Where are you, God? And then Job comes to his senses. This is a man that has been in relationship with God and in the trial says, I'm going to trust my God no matter what. He says this, but he knows the way that I take. And when he has tested me, I'll come forth as gold. Now listen to this. God knows where I am. You must know that in your crucible hour of darkness. God knows right where I am, even when I do not sense him. And I would say, especially when I do not understand him. Because I don't understand many of things that have happened in our lives. I do not understand it. Job did not understand. He was never told why. 
Through the whole book of Job, he's never told why and what was going on in the background with this discussion of God and Satan in heaven. It is here, in the darkness of our not understanding why, that we rely on the sovereignty of God. And if you trust the sovereignty of God, and you come to a point that I will trust you no matter what, God, that'll save you many sleepless nights. Many sleepless nights. The redemption price was paid. Mission accomplished. Next thing Jesus cries from the cross is, I, I thirst. Then he says, that's the fifth cry. Then it is finished to tell us die. The price has been paid. Then he says, into your hands I commit my spirit, my spirit, the seventh cry from the cross. Now there's a slide here that has all of these on it. It'll come up now. So, ninth hour, Jesus is on the cross. The first thing he says is, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. Really pointed at the Roman soldiers that have brutalized him. To the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. As a handoff of mom's care is given to John. And then the darkness comes and all the sins of the world are imputed or credited or placed on Jesus. And he cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then he says, I thirst, it is finished, and into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he's buried and he experiences physical death. Folks, the cross is essential for us. It was awful for Jesus, but his great love for us placed him on that cross. What was accomplished on the cross? I'm going to ask you guys to perk up here for just a second. Because there's going to be two theological things that you're going to want to remember. Now, it's not too difficult, though this isn't so deep that we can't understand this. Number one was the substitutionary atonement. What does that mean? We'll just break it down real easy. Jesus substituted for me, taking all the wrath of God on himself that I deserved. And we'll get to atonement in a second. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, taking all of our sin, that we might, qualifier, you have to believe and receive the gift, become the righteousness of God in him. So what is atonement? The word means covering. I mean, Jesus covered our sins, not just covered them, but took them away. There's a difference between the Old Testament sacrifice, which would cover for a time, and Jesus, which takes them away permanently. So, atonement is propitiation. Now, that's a word you might want to remember. Propitiation, an acceptable sacrifice, pacifying, listen to this, the wrath of God. Yes, God is wrathful. God is wrathful. The atonement was universal. It was not limited. It was available to everyone. 1 John 2, 2, he, is the, he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only our sins, but the sins of the entire world. The atoning sacrifice is the propitiation, assuaging, pacifying the wrath of God. But remember, that atonement must be believed personally. John 1, 12 sums it up perfectly. Yet all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Not born of natural descent, nor human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Receive him. Believe the gift of salvation. The second thing that you want you to remember 
is the redemption price was paid. Jesus redeemed us. Jesus paid the purchase price, the ransom price for us. He ransomed us, purchased us out of the slave market of sin. Now, you've heard this verse quoted many times from this pulpit. And that's Colossians 1.13. And it says this, He has delivered us. Delivered us. That word is rumai. And that is a violent extraction from the kingdom of darkness and placed us into the kingdom of light the moment that we believed. Rumai. He, you were ripped out of Satan's kingdom and placed into the kingdom of light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us in the kingdom of the Son of His love in whom we have redemption, ransom price paid, we have a redemption for our sins. So Christ died in our place, replacing us and paid our penalty. Now, remember God is perfect. God is just. God is righteous. God cannot be in the presence of sin. He cannot. We could never be in the presence of God in the state that we're in. We must have a Savior, a substitute that took our sin debt on Himself. Jesus was that. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. Romans 3.10. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who seeks after God. There's nobody who does good. So when you get into this thing, when you ask somebody, why will God let, you, let me into their kingdom? And they say, well, I'm a good person. I'm way better than Freddie that lives next door. He's way worse than me. Certainly God will let me in. That is false. That is what we call balagna. Baloney. <laughs> Baloney. Yes, that's right. Sinful humans cannot pay their own sin debt. We needed a Savior, folks. Now, this is a must-know, a must-know for every single believer. God's wrath is on all mankind because of sin. And again, I want to really emphasize this. Every human being born into this world is born into the kingdom of darkness. Those little innocent babies, you think, you're looking at them, they're all cooey and nice. They're not so nice at 3 o'clock in the morning. When you can't get them to shut up, you know, yeah, and they have that high, God just gave them that high pierced cry. Yeah, it just pierces your inner soul. Yeah, at that point, you get angry. You get angry. I remember when Scott, you know, I mean, he was up crying, and, and the lady next door says, he's got his days and nights mixed up. So this is what you have to do. You take him over the fence. This is a true story, isn't it, hon? And you take him and put him on this side of the fence, turn him over, and then put him on this side of the fence, and then he'll have his days and nights right. Oh, well, we tried that. <laughs> that didn't work. He was up crying, screaming. And, and I remember saying, if there's ever a time I feel like flushing something down the toilet, I mean, I've just, I got this feeling of like, you know, we're, we're young. We don't know what we're doing. We don't have a clue. But then, you know, they grow on you, and you get to, you get to look. <laughs> And so I discovered the technique of having to just fall asleep on my on my chest, and then we just, he and I would sleep during the night that way, but yeah, it, it's, they're not so innocent. Wrath of God is on everybody, even the babies. The only way God's wrath is to removed is to believe in his son's death in your place. Now, this is not a ho-hum verse that I'm going to share with you. Oh no, here comes another verse. Listen to this verse. Romans 5, 8 through 11. 
God demonstrates. See, love is a verb. There's an action that's involved here. God demonstrates his own love towards us, his own agape towards us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more having been now been justified, declared righteous because of the blood sacrifice that had been applied to my life. By his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies of God, yeah, that's right, enemies of God. Every human born in this world are born as an enemy of God. Strange, isn't it? We were reconciled, brought back into right relationship with God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Look, when we say that we're saved, people usually say, well, I'm saved from hell. That's true. I'm saved to heaven. That's true. But folks, you're saved from the wrath of God. That's really what you're saved from. But we also rejoice in God through also through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation, catalosa. We've been brought back into right relationship with God by the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. His blood applied to our lives like the Passover lamb's blood was applied to the lentil and the doorpost. Jesus' blood is applied to me and the destroying angel who passed by the blood on the on the doorpost in Egypt, passes by us as we are declared righteous before a holy God. Before a holy God, the blood sacrifice. This is an act of love by God. Now, I want you to hear this. Everybody, yeah, you guys are doing pretty good. Everybody's basically paying attention. Nobody's drifting yet. However, God's love is not greater than his other attributes. We're going to build on this. God is not more loving than He is just, righteous, or sovereign. But it is, He does have amazing love for His people, for people in general. God loves the world that He gave His only begotten Son. What was the hymn? Amazing love, how can it be that Thou, my God, would die for me? He died for me. Put your name there. Now, I have a, a slide here. That gives you just a few of the attributes of God. And you must remember in this slide that the, all of these attributes are encompass God. None of these attributes is greater than any other attribute. He is sovereign. He is righteous, justice, love, eternal life, omniscient. He is all-knowing. There's not one datum of information that God does not have. He is omnipresent. He is all over. There's no place that you can go in anywhere you go in the universe where God is not. He's omnipotent, all-powerful. He's immutable. He is unchanging. Veracity is truthfulness. He is always truthful. Now, with, those, with this stated, why am I saying this? Our world capitalizes on God's love to the exclusion of His righteousness and justice. And what have we seen happen, particularly in the last 50 years, or longer than that? It started in the 60s. This deterioration started in the 60s. And it really, by the end of the 60s, man, we're getting depraved. That's my generation. Talking about my generation. Okay. <laughs> I don't know how that got in there, but it did. But God's love is... <laughs> God's love is often used as a license to condone 
lifestyles that are contrary to God. So we see this all the time. God's love does not condone living any way that you want and cover it with love. It does not. That is a false teaching. Now, sin is sin. I'll give you a list. Now, if you were doing this talk, you can make up your own list. This is just something I just threw together. Adultery, we know, is sin. Gluttony, any of us have that? You live here, you have it, is a sin. Gossip is a sin, we have that. Drunkenness, fornication, any sexual act outside of the marriage covenant is a sin. Idolatry is a sin. But listen, homosexual marriage, there's no such thing. Homosexuality is a sin. There's no such thing as homosexual marriage. I don't care what the government says. God says there's no such thing. Transgenderism is a sin. Abortion covered by a woman's right to choose is a sin. It's a tragic sin. There's two victims. The baby dies, then the mother lives with that grief. Folks, abortion is not beyond forgivable sin. Uh, that can be forgiven like anything else. You don't have to live with, with that guilt forever. You can ask for forgiveness and move on. It doesn't matter what the government tells us is okay. That does not matter. That does not move us one ounce off of center. It does not matter what a university professor tells your kids and they come home all woke up. They've been put to sleep. They haven't been woke. They've been put to sleep. How about corporations that have bought into that? How about sports teams that have bought into this? How about people who buy into this? It doesn't matter what people say. God calls sin, sin. And sin separates us from God. God cries out, Jesus on the cross, God himself, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of course, the ultimate separation is if you refuse Jesus as your Savior and you end up in the lake of fire or hell forever. That's the ultimate. That's the ultimate. And no one needs to go there. More on that in just a second. So one cannot cover sin. Excuse me. I have an overhead here. Our problem is sin. And you've seen this, and usually I could have chose the one with the cross, but sinful humanity is headed for eternal darkness because of our sin, Jesus bridged the gap with the cross between us and God. And if we believe in him, we can live with the holy God forever. Now, I have a next slide here. Now, you're wondering, what in the world does this mean? This doesn't mean hit, like hit the little squirrel and dink, dink, dink. And, no, it's not that. This is sin. This is different levels of sin. See, we see sin. Well, this is kind of bad, and this is really bad, and this is not so bad, and this is bad. See, we grade sin. This is a little bitty sin. This is a great big sin. Well, I don't do these little bitty sins. We must realize that any sin, any breaking of the law, separates us from a holy God. If we keep the whole law, yet stumble in one point, we are guilty of all. Guilty of all. So that's a concept that we have to get. One cannot cover sin with God is love and God wink at that sin. He won't. Lifestyle choices have eternal consequences. And that eternal consequence is if you choose to live separate from God, you will live forever in hell separated from God. Hell was not created for humanity. You know who it was created for, the devil and his angels. And God has given humanity a way out. 
He's given us a, a life preserver. God provided a way out, God's life preserver. And I have a picture here that comes up. Jesus is that life preserver. It isn't Buddha. It isn't Allah. It isn't any of the Hindu, Hindu writings or the Hindu gods. It is Jesus. He's our Savior. He is the Christ. And he brings us life. 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 Now, I have some closing thoughts. This will be a little extensive. Okay? Jesus cried, it is finished. Now, those words should be sweet words to us because the ransom has been paid. Sweet words to us. The wrath of God has been poured out on his son. Now, I want to talk to you about something that all of us have to deal with, and that's anger and wrath. If you don't, make, if you don't get to play on a team, and you're sitting on the bench, and I'm looking out there, and I'm going, hmm, I'm way better than that guy. Why aren't I in there? Everyone that's ever been in sports at some level has felt this. Anger that someone is ahead of you. Or anger elicited in many different things that I've expounded on earlier. Anger and wrath, that's all part of us. But do you know that anger and wrath did not exist before the fall? There was no anger and wrath in humanity before the fall. After the fall, that's when that came. A perfect world where there's no sin, no anger, no wrath. Sounds like heaven, doesn't it? I think it is. I think it is. Now remember the two words, orge and thumos. Orge, that slow simmering wrath that just kind of lays under the surface and you just kind of ticked off all the time. And thumos is when that hits a percolating point and explodes. Explodes. I have a question for you before we go any farther. Does God get angry and wrathful? Yes, you know he does. Why? God's anger burns against the destructiveness of sin and rebellion against him. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed, is revealed. Focus on that word, is revealed, keep it in your mind, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth of who God is in unrighteousness. Is revealed, that, that, that wrath of God is revealed, is in the present tense. Listen to this. God's wrath is ongoing against human rebellion against him. It is ongoing. Now, when was God's wrath first seen in all of his creation? It goes back to an angel. It goes back to a cherub. It goes back to Satan, who decided that he was going to rebel against God, took a third of the angels with him, and I think this happened. This is a postulate. This is a theory. But I don't think that Satan and those angels ever saw the anger or wrath of God. There was no need for it. There was no need for it prior to the fall. But when the fall came, Satan experienced the wrath of God. In Ezekiel 28, 16, it says this, Therefore, because of his rebellion against God, I cast you. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a vicious word. Like when we were cast into the lake of fire. That's thrown out of heaven. He cast you out of heaven. He cast him to the earth. He cast him to the atmospheric heavens. I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, heaven, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub. You're no longer going to be the cherub. I destroyed your position. You're no longer going to be leading worship in heaven. You're no longer going to be the highest of my creation. 
This is an expression of God's wrath. Now, think about what happened here. Satan is cast out, but Satan still has access to heaven by invitation. How do I know that? Job chapter 1, verse 6 says this. Talking about giving an account. There was a day when the sons of God, speaking of angels, good and bad, came to, pre came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan was among them. Satan can only come by invitation. Invitation before God. Now, I want you to think about this. In Revelation, we see the thumos of God being on display. Generally, you see the word orge used. But in Revelation, two places you see the thumos of God displayed. In Revelation 14, 9, and 10, has to do with worshiping the beast, which you take the mark. Remember? You take the mark on your hand or on your forehead, and you're pledging allegiance to the beast. That is the sealing of Satan of humanity that decide to go with him. No takes back after that, okay? So with that, think about this. He himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath, thumos, a panting wrath of God who have abjectly rejected God. Revelation 15.1, speaking of the bold judgments, remember there's three sets of judgments, seal, trumpet, and bowls. Sealed judgments are awful. The trumpet judgments are badder, not a word, but it's badder. And the, and the, and the bold judgments are the baddest. The baddest. And I believe the bold judgments are just at the end of the tribulation. And at that point, all the earth dwellers are fighting against Jesus coming back. The earth dwellers are those who don't believe in Jesus, have rejected him after all these judgments. So, we read this about these who blaspheme God and did not repent and fight against Jesus. Seven angels having the seven last bowls, the last plagues, the bold judgments, for in them the wrath of God, the thumos of God is, is complete. God's thumos wrath is targeted against those who will fight against God to the end. Now, the last bit of this wrath is when people reject him at the great white throne judgment, and they have already rejected and are thrown into the lake of fire. The wrath of God is fearful, and it is terrifying. So I want to talk with you for a few minutes about anger and wrath, the wrath and anger. We have all felt this emotion, all of us. It's uncomfortable and unpleasant. But I want to suggest to you, mainly, it's a, it's a manifestation of our flesh, our flesh nature. God's anger is measured and perfect. Our anger is not. Man's wrath is generally sinful when it is displayed. So what must we all learn to do with our anger and wrath? We have to learn how to deal with it. Deal with your anger and wrath. And again, everybody has this emotion, some worse at different times in your life, but you're going to have it. So these slides, the following slides, are from a lady named Stella Spencer, who does a talk on anger and wrath. So I've taken her stuff and applied it to this talk, at least some of it. Number one slide, you see these two angry faces up there. That's how you look when you're angry. It isn't, 
you know, it's, you know, you get that anger look. Anger is a basic human emotional response experienced by all people. All people. It's after the fall, we all have it. The anger of men and the anger of God is the next slide. God's anger is targeted. It's targeted. It's precise. It accomplishes righteousness. Man's anger is chaotic. Destroys lives, nations, friendships, churches, families. Now listen to this statement. For a Christian who has the Holy Spirit in them, been born again of the Spirit, okay, who lives in anger and wrath are inconsistent with their new nature, which is the nature of Jesus himself. And we'll talk about righteous anger in just a second, like Jesus had in the temple. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ is a new creation, old things pass away, behold, all things become new. So at least, the very minimum, we should be working on this anger-wrath problem that we have. And it's a work in progress. It's a work of the rest of our life. We're not going to get it perfect while we're here, but there's something, we can get better and better at this and not live in that misery of being angry. The normal human condition, the fallen human condition, is to revert to anger very quickly. That's why you have the shootings all over the place and the, and the abuse against people and that sort of thing. But even Christians can revert to the flesh. You tell me you don't. I mean, in a second... I can go from spiritual Rick to fleshly Rick, and I can say things, and I went, where in the world, Lord, please forgive me for that one. And I've given the example in this before. Just finished my Bible study. You get to hear it for the umpteenth time. I'm cutting the grass. I hit a rock. And when I'm cutting the grass, I'm talking about it's aerobic cutting the grass. You know, I'm kind of hyped. So I'm trying to get my workout in here, trying to get my aerobics. And I hit this stone. And out of my mouth comes these words, which I haven't said in a long time. And I went, and I just finished with the Lord. And I was, Lord, please forgive me. I stopped right there. I says, please forgive me. I have sinned against you. And I ask you to forgive me. It can happen that quick. You can say something to your wife or to your children or to a teammate or to somebody at work that quick. The antidote is take care of it quick. Take care of it quick. So, that's the normal human condition. Fleshly anger. A characteristic of the flesh is outburst of wrath. Thumos. Now in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 through 21, there's a big list of the, of the actions of the flesh. Verse 20 talks about outburst of wrath. Thumos. Now, simmering, not dealt with anger or gay. Listen to this can crescendo into thumos anger at the weirdest times. If you're not dealing with the anger in a relationship, there can be the slightest thing that tips that thing over and, and somebody will respond and it with thumos anger because they haven't dealt with it at the lower level. We must deal with our anger before our anger deals with us. And it's always destructive when that thumos comes out. James 1.20 for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. If we don't deal with our anger and wrath, it is destructive to ourselves and to those around us. It ripples. It ripples. Look at you. you if you're living with an angry person, that is unpleasant. My dad was an angry man. 
And it wasn't all the time that he was angry, but he had thumos a lot of the times. And so what do we do for our lives? Tippy-toe. Tippy-toe. Even when he's being good, we tippy-toed. Tippy-toed around him, hoping he, come, he had to work late, he didn't come home and mess up our game that we were having in the yard or something, because we never knew what he was going to do. It was always uncomfortable. Well, that type of anger is difficult to live with. It is. It's difficult. It's contrary to God. Now, there is such a thing that is called righteous anger. Righteous anger. Well, what is that? Because everybody says, well, I had righteous anger. She burnt my pancakes. I had righteous anger. Well, no, you didn't. Righteous anger is directed at the consequences of sin. Now, listen closely. Ephesians 4.26 says this. Now, most people, particularly married people, don't want to hear this one, but it's the truth. Be angry, the root is orge, and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Your wrath. That's perogismos. Perogismos. It's the only time it's used in Scripture. And it means this, out of your mind anger, strictly forbidden in Scripture. It said rage. It's the only time it's used. Okay? So, what God is saying here to us through the Holy Spirit, be angry, deal with those issues at the beginning levels. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Don't keep this thing going day after day after day after day after day. Deal with it at the beginning level so it doesn't get into perogismos, out of your mind anger. Deal with your anger before your anger deals with you. That anger always produces disruption in relationships. Always uncomfortable. Righteous anger does this. It does not lash out. Does not lash out. It does not seek to harm another person. It seeks to resolve the conflict. Is willing to yield, not insist on their own way. Is looking for peace, not payback. Now, I didn't write these up here because I was running out of space, okay? So, if anger continues, now listen to this, because oftentimes you feel like, I have a right to be angry. I'm just going to be angry, and I'm just going to live my life angry. But you're going to suffer. And it's not just you that suffers. It's everyone around you suffers with this. Remember my dad, everybody around. He wasn't always angry, but it was always uncomfortable. Always uncomfortable, never knowing when he's going to go off. If anger continues and it marinates, it is not righteous anger, but selfish and bitter. And a root of bitterness can grow up into you where you're just living with this. Living with this. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. Lest any root of bitterness spring up and trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. You know what defiled means? Smeared with mud or filth. Smeared with mud or filth. So freedom from anger. Freedom. So we have seven kids. Seven sons. And we all walk around about half ticked off because that's what we were raised in. So you have to have a God experience to take you out of this. Freedom from anger. To realize freedom from the domination of anger and wrath, we need the Holy Spirit's power to help us. We need the Holy Spirit's power to help us. So, identify your anger triggers. Now, I have a list here. 
For time, I'm not going to go through the list. It'll come up on the screen. But believe me, you have an anger, anger trigger, something that really ticks you off more than anything. For me, it's if I feel inconvenienced or I, have an inconven- I get interruption in my day's plans or someone's inconsiderate, that really rubs me wrong. When that dude, or dudess, now there's dudesses just as bad as the dudes, on the highway comes pushing you, pushing you, or cut in front of you, or whatever they do, that ticks me off. So then I have to deal with my anger. And then Chris helps me. She's like the Holy Spirit. You know, take it easy. Don't you? Yeah. So know your triggers, folks. Know them. How do I know if anger is a problem in my life? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Anger is a problem. There's another picture here from the same lady. When it harms you, when it leads to aggression, when it harms people around you, when it disrupts your school or relationships, it always will disrupt relationships, folks. When it's too frequent, intense, and lasts too long, when it harms or affects overall quality of life, when chronic and explosive anger spirals out of control, that thumos, that just pours out on people. Dealing with anger. How are we going to deal with it? Well, the way to deal with it is don't respond at the, at the, at the time. So there's another slide here. and She's going to give you several steps how to deal with your anger. Cool off and stay calm. Well, that's easy to say, but a whole lot harder to do. Matter of fact, sometimes it might be impossible to do at that moment. So you might just have to make an about face and walk away from the situation. Then she says, count to 10, take deep breaths, use calming talk, calm yourself down. Imagine you're in a peaceful place. I don't know how to do that when I'm all ticked off, but go to your peaceful place. But I do understand detaching from the situation and allowing myself time to calm down. I do understand that. I can do that. Don't allow someone's actions to dictate your response, to control your life. Now, I'm going to give you my two cents on this. I got her slides on it. My two cents. Take a time out and turn. What does that mean? Take a time out and turn to God. I'm talking about detaching. This may not be so easy, but it's essential. It is essential in that crisis moment. When you want to return with thumos at you, well, you're going to get thumos from me. You know, that back and forth thing. Have a desire to live at peace, to restore calm. And by the way, you do not have to say everything you're thinking. Please do not do that. For myself, I memorized a whole bunch of scriptures, but I'm going to share one with you. Psalm 141, verse 3 and 4. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth and watch over the door of my lips. Do not incline my heart to any evil thing. It is easy to say something in the flash of a moment that you can't take back and it has crushed somebody else. Be very careful with what you say. Your words can be so damaging to people, especially children or, or, or your loved one. Usually you, you, you pour it out on the one you love the closest. Husband and wife relationships. You can be so brutal. Have a desire to live at peace. So, let things go. Forgiveness. Now listen to this. This is not going to be easy for some of you, but please hear me through this whole thing. Forgiveness is wonderful. It's an essential part of your recovery from anger and wrath. And it's not easy. 
but it is a must to heal. It is a must to heal. How do I forgive? Well, number one, recognize that you have been forgiven fully. Look at we are all sinners, pitiful, pathetic sinners, and God has forgiven us much. And we have been given much. And he, Jesus said, if you do not forgive, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. Those are very, very uh, significant words to us. You have been forgiven much, so you must forgive. Number two, forgive the debt, let it go, and Cleve McCleary, a Marine, in Vietnam, got blown up, and he had one eye, hand is off, and that sort of thing, and he lived with a lot of anger and resentment until God dealt with him, and he had this, this acronym called FIDO. Forget it and drive on. I can't live in this anger and hate all of my life and have a productive life. Forget it and drive on. Don't allow someone's actions or an event to destroy the rest of your life. You can move on with God's help. Some things, and I would say many things, are beyond our ability to forgive. You murder somebody in my family, I can't forgive that. Corey Ten Boom could not forgive that guard until God did a miracle in her heart. The guard that killed Bessie in, in the Holocaust. But she got the power of God to be able to forgive and shake that guy's hand. That's what you need at those times. You need the miracle of God to come into your life to allow you to forgive so you don't live tortured your whole life. And then number three, confess your anger and unforgiveness to the Lord. He wants you to confess to him. Get healthy. Unconfessed anger will keep you in turmoil, will keep you bound for the rest of your life, never free. And if possible, now look at this. This is an if possible. Seek to reconcile. This is not always possible nor advisable. Okay? But it is a goal that we be reconciled as best we can. But again, be discerning because it's not always possible. It's not always possible. And once forgiveness is, is given, now hear this, once you have forgiven someone and you've been freed, no takes back. No takes back. Satan is great in the midst of a crisis to bring you to a point where you did this back here. You, well, we already dealt with that like two years ago. But keep bringing it up, bringing it up, exacerbating the problem. Don't fall for his methodia, for his schemes or his tactics. Once it's forgiven, it must be put to rest. Must be put to rest for you to be healthy. What does it look like to forgive someone? Well, there's a slide. Forgiveness means don't seek revenge in any way. Cancel all the debts. Fido, forget it and drive on. Don't criticize. Forgive unconditionally. And how about this one? Bless the person. Bless the person. You come to full circle when you are able to do that. For real. For real. Now, this is not on the screen. I wish it was, but it was a late entry. Okay? Deal with your anger before it deals with you. How? Action steps. Keep short accounts. Keep short accounts. Do not allow things to build up. Deal with the small things before they become big issues. Now, what does that take? That takes you sitting down and communicating with the person, something we don't want to do as men. 
But folks, you got to sit down and talk with one another to work it out. Be willing to yield. Have an attitude that I want to get better. Remember, if you want to be free, you have to forgive. And it's not easy. I'm not saying it's easy. But it's something that is accomplishable if you allow God to work in you. Some things, again, are so egregious. You want to hold on to that anger. I deserve that anger. But you stay in a mess. And generally, the other person is just free as a bird. Could care less about how you feel. Let yourself be free. Remember, he whom the Son has set free is free indeed. That talks about salvation, but other things too. Forgiveness frees you from the torturers. Matthew 18. You have been set free. Do not go back to unforgiveness, anger, wrath, and bondage. Paybacks will never, ever set you free. And by all means, remember the heart of Jesus. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Free from the bondage of unforgiveness and anger. Folks, you have, everyone here that's been born again of the Spirit, you have the Holy Spirit in you to give you the strength to do the impossible, to forgive when it's, not, when it's unforgivable. So you have the Holy Spirit, you have the tools now walk in what you know. Now this last slide is this. God wants you to be free. To take the shackles off your life. Freedom comes with forgiveness. It's not easy, but essential for you to be healthy. And remember this. Forgiveness is the Jesus way. It really is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that you've given us to study your word. Thank you for that. This is a difficult subject, Lord. Something that penetrates to the deepest part of each one of us. For all have experienced some egregious impropriety in their lives that we get stuck in and live angrily. Oh, Father, help us to be able to turn to you for you to give us the power to release our anger and wrath and be able to move on. Forget it and drive on. Lord, I pray that right now for somebody that's struggling, somebody in their seat thinking, oh, you haven't been through what I've been through. Well, that's true. But many other people have and have been successful in moving on. I pray that for you right now if you are stuck with the torturers torturing your life. Forget it and move on, folks. Thank you for this time together. Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts and give us the power to do what you're calling us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.